Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of New Thoughts, a podcast with David Alexander. And I am so excited on this episode to be bringing to you a conversation with my friend John Pavlovitz. John was the guest at our ministry at New Thought Center for Spiritual Living as part of our Living Prophets series uh, this year, and we had a great dialogue with each other on Sunday morning. And so today's podcast is a rebroadcast of that podcast from our church, uh, the Q&A dialogue from our second service um, at New Thought Center for Spiritual Living. If you don't know who John is, is, uh, you need to pay attention and, and get to know him. He is a magnificent blogger, author, and teacher. Uh, his book, um, his blog, Stuff That Needs to Be Said, is amazing. Learn more about that at johnpavlovitz.com. And uh, his first book, A Bigger Table, Creating Authentic, Messy uh, Christianity, is a wonderful read about inclusivity and, and who we exclude from the table uh, of spirituality at, at times and religion. And his new book, uh, Hope and Other Superpowers, uh, was just released early this year and is also um, a great read. So, without further ado, here is the Q&A session from New Thought Center for Spiritual Living uh, with special guest John Pavlovitz. So we've been engaged. There's some people who weren't here Friday night or weren't here at the workshop yesterday. Uh, and we've been engaged all weekend long in a, in a conversation, uh, not just about uh, uh, your journey, uh, but, the, but the real application of that work. Mm-hmm. And our theme today is what is the common good? We've actually been focusing all month long on the principle of seeking the common good, which is principle number one of the 10 prophetic justice principles written by uh, Reverend James Forbes. And uh, and so we've been looking at the principle of oneness, uh, our shared humanity, our interconnectedness. And so this was a perfect way to cap it off to have you all weekend long. Uh, and we just have to ask, the, as you often ask the question, as you said in your career, how did I get here? Uh, so I'm going to ask you, how did a, um, a four-square Southern Baptist white evangelical pastor get here on a stage of a New Thought uh, Church in Lake Oswego, Oregon. Yeah, if I could explain that, I would put it in a book and we'd be well on our way. Uh, I think um, I've always had a big mouth. And I think, I, I think once, you know, for me growing up, I... Being a pastor was not my first choice, and I became a pastor as sort of a surprise. And I soon began to realize, though, when you're in that place, authenticity can be a liability. And so the more I spoke explicitly into matters of sexuality or racism or misogyny in the church, the more tension that created. And there was a point when I realized I can either be authentic or employed. And I began to speak into that space, and I spoke it into being, and then found my on the outside of that place. But once you're out there, you find out how expansive it is and how beautiful it is and how there are no barriers between you and other people. And so it has come with a cost, that authenticity, but the rewards are so much greater, right? And I think this is the gift we want to give people who are terrified to speak their truth. You will lose something, but you will find so much more. Yeah, that is so good. I think that, um, you know, your, your story and your evolution speaks to 
you know, what you were railing against, as you said, things you saw in the church, misogyny or homophobia or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but but they were they came through the lens of you, as your first book title uh, describes, it, your desire to build a bigger table, yes. right? To build, to be more inclusive, to to love the way Jesus loved, to to mm-hmm. minister the way Jesus ministered, and to build that greater table uh, of inclusion, which is a little bit different than some of the other folks. Like particularly when we started nine years ago with Bishop Carlton, you know, he woke up one day, had an insight, and and the insight was uh, hell doesn't exist, right? There's no, right? And that was sort of like a bing, you know, yeah. really railing against a, a, a core theological tenet. Sure. Whereas you are kind of expressed a, expressed a evolution of consciousness that said, well, I'm just trying to... I'm just trying to love like Jesus loved. I'm just trying to build a bigger table here. Yeah. Well, it never occurred to you when you begin following the path. I think faith at its best is always going to expand the table, always going to welcome those who are not yet welcomed. And I think the path to heresy or to existential crisis, it, it always, there's always a gateway kind of issue or something. For me, it was the issue of sexuality. I started to not resonate with what my faith tradition was doing. And so I started to investigate a handful of verses. Right, And I thought, that's all I'm going to do. I'm going to educate myself on those handful of verses. But what I didn't realize was I was completely getting ready to dismantle the whole thing. Right, And that's terrifying. But for me, there was no way I could have this Jesus who was a barrier-breaking, table-expanding human being and, and the theology that I was steeped in. And so something had to give. And so that's the place I found myself. And so here you are. So yeah. <laughs> welcome to New Thought. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. No, and, and I say that sincerely, and he and I have talked, we've had several wonderful conversations over the weekend uh, that, you know, many of the original New Thought authors actually, and very much in the same way, they, they, they desired to write about a Christ consciousness and articulate a, a spiritual way of being mm-hmm. that many of them, because they were rooted in Christian traditions, and we're talking about 150 years ago, right. uh, and in, on the East Coast, in New England, etc., um, that they really believed that their writings and their works were going to help revolutionize Christianity. Christianity, mm, that there was yeah. going to sort of save Christianity from itself, right? And that didn't happen, uh, at least not in that time, in, in, in their time period, right? But now, you've, I mean, John Pavlovitz is one of, uh, you know, you've got Brian McLaren, you've got uh, Bishop Yvette Flunder, Carlton Pearson, many others who are, who are writing these things saying, hey, wait a second, there, there, there's, there's something to this thing that, that, that being a follower of the way mm. it, means something more than the dogma that surrounds it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and for me, I, you know, as we talked on Friday, I went back to my faith tradition and it was the table ministry of Jesus, the way he uses the act of sharing a meal with someone, of breaking bread with someone to let them know they're seen and heard and loved and to really make a statement. And for me, that was the place that I, I had to be. There wasn't a choice any longer. Once you see things, right, once you have something uncovered for you, you can't go back to that old thing. And, and for me, that's the gift I want to give so many people who are raised in my tradition who don't realize how beautiful a space that is. And see, when Jesus meets with someone, he always left them with their dignity intact, right? They always felt more human than less. And that's what I think we as people of faith need to do. We need to see people, let them know that they're seen, and then let them know how beautiful they actually are. That's beautiful. That's Amen to that, right? Yeah. 
And it, it, it is creating a space where we're celebrating what my friend Bishop Yvette Flunder says uh, is the common Christ. Yes. Right? The, 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 or the, even the, the common Christ consciousness mm-hmm. that even expands beyond Christianity. It's the consciousness yes. that is in Buddhism, in Judaism, in Islam. It, it's the consciousness that brings people together, yeah. that honors human dignity and, our, and the intersection between our human dignity and our spirituality. Yeah, and when we're freed up from w- whether it's theological or political restraints, you know inherently what the right thing is, right? I started asking people a year and a half ago, what kind of person does the world need? And their answers, there was so much commonality. It didn't matter their politics or their religion. They would say things like generosity and gratitude and kindness. And, and so once you're in that place where you don't have to fear the wrong answer, you know what the right answer is despite what you've been taught. And I think when we're in that place... That's when the, the greatest um, parts of faith come to bear. It's oh, beautiful. Uh, so it, when you know what the right answer is, <laughs> let's, exp- let's unpack that a little bit, right? Because you, you mentioned the word. He brought it into the room. By the way, this is the person. So if you've ever been mad at a sermon that I've given in the last three, four, well, let's say five years, you. Um, you know, something I've said about something <laughs> political and you thought he's gone too far. Why is he, talk- yes. why is he poking at that bear on a Sunday morning? I don't want that in my Sunday morning experience. <laughs> it's because I read his blog on Saturday night. Yes, that's right. Okay? So. And I was probably quoting him. <laughs> yep. Thoughts and prayers for your career. <laughs> yeah. Right. Amen. Amen to that. Uh, so no, that's, I'm usually either directly quoting or at least paraphrasing, uh, uh, this man's work. So, uh, but that does get us into that territory of everybody thinks that what they're doing is, uh, as we affirm here, uh, helping make the world a better place. Right. And so what do we do? How do we find the common good when what one person over here is seeking as making the world a better place is directly opposed to how I'm trying to make the world a better place? And not even that, not only directly opposed, but uh, perhaps even threatening to my human dignity. Yeah, the challenge is that um, nobody thinks they're doing theology wrong. No one thinks they're doing, you know, religion, uh, politics wrong. And part of it is, I think, being story learners. Um, for me, what changed me, I didn't wake up thinking, I'm going to derail all my theology or I'm going to lose my job. It was, I started to hear stories of people whose versions of America and the church and of faith were very different from my own. And those stories started to change me. And, you know, I had a professor in art school and he we were uh, drawing a still life and it was just ordinary objects and he said you know these are just ordinary things but the the job of the artist is to show people the beauty that they have forgotten about the ordinary things but he said the only way you're going to be able to do that is to become a student of what you draw to actually look at it and study it and understand its weight and its color and how it fills space we have to become students of other people not just people we agree with and and love uh, or even like we have to to become students of all people because the truth is everyone is grieving something right everyone is fearful of something and so we've got to step into that place and be brave enough to sit with it and listen so i can begin to move beyond my judgment of the other for what they might be 
uh, spouting on the street corner or, or doing politically or presenting uh, in my space and say, what is their story? Yeah, you know, I, I talk about in the book about being with a, a, a gay teenager and we're talking about these issues and right outside the door is Southern Baptist sign guy and we can see him in the window. And she said, you know, how do I love Southern Baptist sign guy who said I'm going to hell for who I am and how I love, right? And I wanted to phone a friend, right? And I, I, I just said to her, well, he, this gentleman was not born the sign guy. He had a story. He had an image of God placed within him. He had an understanding of who he was and his belovedness. And we need to understand that he had a story and a road and begin to learn that. But the other thing is that to realize that right now he believes he's doing something beautiful. He believes he's listening to the voice of God and responding. And that's what you and I are doing. So we can at least meet people in that place that genuinely most people get up every morning and desire to be part of the good in the world. And so we just differ on the mechanism of that. Right. So, so our task becomes to build that bigger table, but, uh, full stop, right. Our task is to build the bigger table. And, uh, how do I do that? This came up in the workshop Mm. over the weekend. Uh, what happens when the, the space that I'm setting over here is for the person or the archetype of the person, Mm. uh, that has abused me? Yes. My, literally my abuser or oppressor. Yeah. Uh, can, can I build a table that includes that? And then do I have to, if I'm the victim, do I have to right. create space for, for that? That's, that seems right. Awful. Yeah. We can easily weaponize diversity right now. And I think, you know, I have people say to me, well, John, this is my, this is how I voted or this is my feeling about uh, gay people. And am I still welcome at your table? And I, and I tell them, well, the table is not bigger because you can come and say or do anything you'd like there. The table is bigger because everyone is seen and heard. And there, there's a challenge for us because for me, um, the bigger table and diversity does not mean giving people proximity to do damage to other people, right? And I have to realize that if I have a transgender teenager and I have a Southern Baptist sign guy and I invite them to the table, it's a far greater ask of her, of the teenager. And so for me, I don't want to sacrifice vulnerable people on the altar of my diversity, right? Um, So that... That means understanding that when we all come to the table, we don't all come, we come with equal worth, but we don't come with equal baggage or barrier or, or damage. Yeah. We unpackaged a lot this weekend about grief uh, and yeah. anger, and, and you, you asked the question in our workshop, where, where is your anger sourced from? Like where, where is it showing up? And a lot of people talked about politics. A lot of people talked about some of the justice issues in the world. Yeah. And I was, I was sitting over here, and I was quietly writing because I knew I'd have time with you. And I was quietly writing, and I was saying, and what came out was, uh, I'm not angry at them, whoever I define as them, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I, can, I can look at that and say, okay, they have a different story, they have a different perspective, and they, yeah. you know, I can argue on the, on the details without hating the person. You know, I've, I've done my work, I'm enlightened, all right. Uh, <laughs> but as I kept writing, I thought, wh- wh- where, where the anger is for me uh, is with uh, what I would call white apathy, mm. right? Uh, or justice apathy, or you know, I mean, but it often is is with white folks. Sorry, uh, but that's where you know it's. Um, yeah, don't apologize. For yeah, it, that's right. right. Uh, uh, you know, so and to to presence that, I get angry when when people tell me, you know, oh well, you know, you care about Black Lives Matter because you have black children, uh, right? And it's like. 
Right. You know, maybe you shouldn't talk about that as much or, yeah. you know, people are getting kind of tired of it or, you know, that's not mm. an issue here or uh, or all of these sorts of, you know, it's like, oh, that was, a you know, the, the school shooting, you know, that, that that was a big, that was big in the news, but that was weeks, months, right. year, and now a year ago. We're over that now, yeah. you know, uh, and... And it was actually Rabbi Brian, uh, who I think was quoting Robert Schuller, uh, if I was correct. Uh, it was a great quote where he said, um, Robert Schuller said uh, that righteous indignation is jealousy with a halo. Right? I'll say it again because you kind of got to let that one sink in. Righteous indignation is jealousy with a halo. Mm. And so I wrote that down and I was thinking again about where my anger shows up and I thought, Wow, I, there's a part of me that's that when I, when I feel when I sense people don't care about the issues that I care about yeah. as passionately or as deeply as I do, I'm there's a part of me that is sort of strangely jealous that they're checked out. Yes, right. That they have the privilege, right, to 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 not care. Right. I have, you know, I have my boys and my family, and and that's an issue. Uh, and there's lots of other justice issues I care about, but that's obviously in my face. In my, it's in my life every single day. Mm. And I look at other people who go, you know, they don't. It's it's not as high on your list, right? It's not as hot for you. And I, and there's a part of me that's actually jealous of that. I'm like, well, how dare you be yes. able to check out? I can't check out. Right. Yeah. I, I think for me, the lug, privilege is embodied in the luxury of tiring of things, of justice issues. Right. For, for wow. me, I, I have a, a, a there's a gentleman, um, fa- father of two. He's in a church in our community in Raleigh. He's been living there for almost 18 months. And he does not get tired of someone like myself talking about the migrant crisis and the crisis of ICE and immigration and the border. We may get tired of it as white people, but he will never get tired of it. And so I want to make sure that people like him are in my mind every day. And see, privilege, friends, for many of those of you who are afflicted with it, hallelujah, in this room, um, (laughs) all it is is a currency that you are charged with leveraging to bring more peace and more justice and more compassion into the world, right? Um, No. Because we we have this statement, uh, we made amends to the African-American community, right? And we all felt that deeply. But the easiest place to make that amends is in this room. The difficult place is outside when it causes me to rub up against my privilege. That's right. That's Um, right. Uh, I, I met a woman in Missouri. She was 80 years old, and she came up to me after an event. She said, I have a beautiful story to tell you. And I said, great. I love beautiful stories. She said, I have a friend on Facebook. We've been friends for decades. She posted something that was inappropriate about people of color. She said, so I decided I was going to post right on her wall why I disagreed with her. And she said, and she unfriended me. I said, I don't know if you know how beautiful stories work, but that was horrible. Right? But I was like, get out. That didn't go well. uh, That kind of encouragement I don't need. But she said, just before that happened, one of our mutual friends' friend requested me. And she said, I I approved it. And then she sent me a message. And and then the message said, I've been a Christian most of my life, but I've lost faith in people because I see no Jesus in them. And you made me feel like I was less alone when I saw you speak on our friend's wall. And I want to remind people, you're not just speaking to the person you think you're speaking to. There is a, a multitude of people watching you and that's where your voice can carry as well beautiful beautiful yeah 
And so that, that brings us to your second book, which is about uh, hope and, and superheroes. You know, I did a, a summer series. We did a summer series here that was all based on superheroes in July and, and into August. And, and so we looked at the different superheroes and the, the spiritual power of those, yeah. and how we embody those. So how do, do, because at least for, for us, the lesson out of that, the lesson for me, I don't know what you all got out of it, but here's what I got out of teaching that series, um, is that, you know, Christianity can, can be a superhero story, right? It's mm. this, this notion that this Jesus figure is going to come rescue us right. and make it all right, mm. right? Uh, but when we really dig into the, the superhero stories, what we begin to learn is that that their metaphors, their symbols, their allegories to, to invoke within us the power that we have to be the change. Yeah, yeah, right. right. So, so how do we tell us what you wrote about in, in, in that book and how we can be superheroes for the change we want to make? Yeah, you know, about a year and a half ago, I was talking to a friend who was particularly exasperated by a day in our country. I don't know if that ever happens to you, but... Um, <laughs> she, a particular day. She was frustrated and she said, you know, doesn't anyone remember how to be a decent human being anymore? More. And I said, a lot of people do. It's just so easy in our day-to-day to forget, right? And so I wanted to write something elemental uh, about just the best way to be human because men, there are so many agreement points on that. And I love the stories of superheroes because there's transformation there. There's someone who appears to be ordinary doing something that they realize they have these gifts and talents and abilities. And for, for those of us in this room who are present... Right now, we have never existed before in the history of the planet, right? That means that your talents and gifts and abilities and perspective, it's unlike anything that's ever happened. And so whatever you choose to do in the world is going to be historic and novel. And so this is what we're charged with doing. Where are the gaps I see in the world of compassion or kindness or love? How am I going to fill it? Not how am I going to wait for a religious leader or a politician or a celebrity to do it? Mm. How am I going to do it? How am I going to save the small world that I'm charged with caring for? Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. And we got a lot of superheroes in the room. I know that uh, many of us are doing, yes. doing great work. And so it's so important to be together in community. Let's talk a little bit about self-care and community. And because and, we talked a lot about being tired this weekend. Yes. Uh, we had a special, we had actually a private session with pastors uh, yesterday morning. We just uh, napped for three hours. <laughs> it was the easiest gig I ever had. It's like... No, it was really, it was really deep. But actually, you know, I actually want to plant this seed publicly because I want witnesses to it. It was really wonderful. And in the back to the hotel, I was with John and I were talking and I said, you know, it would be really great is to continue that kind of workshop. And we had a few hours together uh, and we talked about self-care and what would be really great. Uh, would be to do that again, no charge to, to clergy or to justice workers. Uh, but then to after lunch, we continued to, to have dialogue and dyads or whatever it might be structured. But then at the same time, there would be space for uh, chair massage and some Reiki over here and some, you know, some self care things happening at mm-hmm. the same time. So I just want to plant that seed. I don't know if you and I are going to do that here or you're going to take That's that right. idea and do it somewhere else, but we're There's just planting wine the downstairs, seed. downstairs, everyone. That's right. Oh, <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> There, it was water. You should see how we did it. It's amazing. You should see what I have in my office. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else? Uh, no. I, so, so talk to us about 
that about self care and and the, I think the power of being in community as we as we move forward. Yeah, well, I think for for most of us who are out there, we care deeply about the world, and there's so much to care about that we can so easily become overwhelmed by it. And for me, you know, there are a lot of self care remedies, but one of them is community because community reminds us that we're not alone and that we're not crazy. And if we are crazy, we're in really good company, right? So we can walk into a day, we can leave this place looking around the room and saying, that's where the hope is, right? I know there are people like me, like-hearted people who really want to do beautiful things in the world. And so community is medicinal. So use it well. Yeah. One other thing John said in the first service I want to bring forward is that, uh, you know, the, the traditional view of, of the Gospels is as eyewitness accounts uh, to this extraordinary life of this yeah. man, Jesus. And, and the more metaphysical view is, is that uh, they're allegories written many decades later, but there's still an attempt there to wrap a story around uh, an experience, right? right? A reflection of this happened in history and let me tell you about it. Yeah. And... And and we tend to, or particularly in, in the Christian church, we tend to, right, we package all that together, we canonize it, and we put it over there. Mm-hmm. But we're living in extraordinary times, and, and you and I are writing Gospels. Yeah. Right? This is a Gospel writer, right? Mm-hmm. The bigger table is the Gospel according to John Pavlovitz, <laughs> right? You know, uh, Hope, his second book. That, those, are, those are canon pieces. You know, actually, Bishop Flunder uh, has, and, and I have talked about this. She wants to get a group of people together and actually write new canonized scripture. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, it's time, right? Because... Right. As, as the United Methodist Church says, God is still speaking, mm. right? Um, so I just stole your thunder because I, 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 I told you what you told them. But, That's right. Uh, <laughs> I'm showing you for copyright infringement. Um, no, yeah, yeah. I, I said earlier that the, the, the good news, there is the gospel that means good news, right? There is a gospel according to you. There are things that you have seen and experienced that no one else has seen or experienced. And when you speak those words, you're giving people something they've never had before, right? And even with grief for me, I started writing about my father's passing. Many people have lost their father, but only I could be me speaking about my relationship with my father. And so whatever your gospel is, whatever your good news is, whatever you've seen, speak it, and then you may get fired. I've had that thought many times. Yeah. So, let, so let's pray that into existence. I know some of you have been waiting. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I think it's time to end the service. Um, thanks. Thanks so much for coming, John. Uh, that's right. Did the check clear yet? <laughs> better. We, have, we have a ride waiting outside for you directly to the airport. <laughs> no, I... I, I <laughs> So this good. is what's developed, right? We're brother. We have a brotherhood now, and, and it's it's deep. So it's, yes, we keep razzing really, each other. Really. I'm going to join uh, Rabbi Brian and, and send you humorous texts and yeah. uh, things that you won't share with anybody else because it'll be inappropriate. Uh, well, yes, and really, I want I want to th- hold this feeling, like the joy of this moment. This is because we're in a place where we know we're doing the same work together, and it's going to be discouraging an hour or two days from now. We need to remember that that we have this. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's hug it out. All right. <laughs> John Pavlovitz, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you.